just Zoom, using Zoom for everything. Oh, I was going to say, I think Rad Cafe has introduced me to more digital platforms than any other like space I've been in since like March 2020, if that makes sense. That, that's pretty wild. That's probably because like after a year of pandemic stuff, like technology companies had to do something like fill in the niches. So we had to break the monopoly, the chokehold that Zoom had. Exactly. Not that these apps didn't exist before, but they def they're definitely like kicking into new value adds to their products and such. Cool. Not sure if I'm going to leave that in, but why not? So hi, everyone, this is Tree again. This is Rad Cafe, the Rad Cafe Reflection podcast series, where I talk to all the active cohort members, people who worked with me and workshopped with me on their research topics, their topics of interest during the course of Rad Cafe. Tonight we have Chris, and Chris will introduce um, herself in a bit. Uh, and just the recap that I give every time. Yeah, Rad Cafe is this political co-learning space that was funded by Seed that I, Trevo, designed, administered, facilitated all in one this, from late August to now, early November. A selection season in Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, and that's been madness. <laughs> I don't know who needs to hear that, but but here, since Seed, the Seed Project is based in the Twin Cities, or rent st stabilization stuff, uh, police, uh, public safety department stuff on the charter. Okay, that's the, but that's beside the point. I mean, not really, because, you know, Southeast Asians, what, what is our relationship to these things at a local level? For the most part, Southeast Asians are not going to, aren't living in a Southeast Asian city where they were talking about this, embedded in, like, mostly white city spaces with uh, Black folks, minoritized folks kind of hoping or working their doing their best to make the city work for them. Usually it's an uphill battle. So like what, what are Southeast Asians to do in relationship to these things are questions that Rad Cafe ideally addresses. For tonight, we have a different set of questions that our guest and our active cohort member focused on, which we'll get to later. I wanted to let Chris introduce herself Yeah, at, at a basic level. Who, who are you, Chris? Why? Not why. <laughs> Just tell, tell us about yourself. Yes. Who am I indeed? Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Fan. I use she, her pronouns. I am Vietnamese, second generation American, child of refugees. I grew up in Washington State uh, on Coastal Salish and Puyallup land, um, which is where my parents still live. And I am currently on Ohlone land in Oakland, California. That is who I am. I just started a new job, actually, and I just, folks are still waiting on me to submit my bio, which I struggle with every single time. So it's not my area of expertise, but hello, it's, thanks for listening in, um, and it's good to meet you in the future. Yes, hopefully any of y'all out there listening to Chris, for whatever reason, are able to connect with her in meet space, in, in real life, um, after hearing this podcast, getting to know her a little bit. And so, yeah, congratulations on, on the job. I don't know if you're at liberty to share more about what it is or what you do there? No, I, I just started it, so I can't flex just yet. Um, <laughs> but it is on technology equity. It's a policy fellowship. A lot of it is focused on things like algorithmic bias, so how computers can be just as problematic and biased and occasionally racist as we are, among other topics. Funny that you brought this up. Um, there's this magazine series called Logic, which I don't know how they posture themselves, but like looking through it, they, they have a very like leftist analysis of a lot of things. And they had um, in their edition 13 or something called Commons, they talked about the idea of like green Luddites. I don't know how to capture it, but but have you heard of the magazine series Logic? I have not. This one chapter, they talked about how during a certain period, there were these like sewing laborers. I, I forget, like technicians, specialists who destroyed this new line of um, sewing machines or something of that sort. Because technology is political, as, as you said. And even before 
And currently, we think about automation and more digital space technologies that technologies can be used in, to wipe out a whole class of kind of work that people can do. And we understand like the, the threat of automation to earn a living wage and being able to earn things. Yeah. And yeah, if you, I don't know if you want to share more about technology as a political site of contention or site of conflict. Oh my gosh. I ha always have thoughts on it. I'm, and they're constantly evolving. I don't think being a Luddite is necessarily the answer, but for those listening in, I actually went to school in Silicon Valley and was a computer science major and so I came from those early years my college years I started out a techno optimist like a little Silicon Valley Sheryl Sandberg lean in entrepreneurship um, so as a result I think now after kind of learning those harms whether that be on surveilling communities of color and activists on companies like deliberately destabilizing internet multinational companies and social media networks deliberately destabilizing other countries algorithms being used uh, as another cloak for violating civil rights protections that were established in the 60s i think i now like know that i am on the more cynical side and i know there are folks that are trying to develop pathways to for like techno optimism, especially badass Afrofuturists. For me, in my role in understanding how technology is going to continue to evolve and what are um, how it's going to impact um, the communities that we care about. My personal role is one of vigilance, I think. I don't think I'm a Luddite. I know that the digital divide, which is essentially the gap of having digital access or high-speed internet from certain communities to the other, is very much built on racial and class lines, though. So I don't want to tell folks in my community spaces, like, oh my gosh, don't use this tool, or you shouldn't do that, because that is perpetuating um, and perpetuating those harms, and also limiting people's access to economic opportunity and overall equity. So those are big thoughts, I know. Yeah, I think I am just, I'm an earth sign through and through, vigilant and careful when it comes to technology. Excellent. The, the, this is actually a new side of you that I um, don't think was really, maybe that was by design of like me not allowing enough space for you to share more, but I don't think we actually talked about this aspect of the side of your life that you are very sensitive to these things, these topics. Oh, Maybe not. Maybe that's part of the political journey question. Um, I will say part of that is also um, where I am right now is I'm trying to figure out those connections between Southeast Asian identity um, and political identity and this technology policy or equity frameworks. Um, I'm still trying to connect those dots, honestly. So that's probably why I didn't come up in conversation. Yeah. I feel like hopefully we can connect some of those dots here. I use that metaphor of like jumping off a cliff and building the airplane on the way down. This kind of feels like that of like, there was, oh, okay. The parts were all there. We could have talked about it in private, but I'm I'm down. I'm down to like start knitting this thing after jumping off the cliff. I don't know. I don't, I'm being way too dramatic. I think something, if it makes you feel better, you know, everything is, everything is intersecting systems of oppression and intersecting identities. So technically this is related to what we were going to talk about. If you really think about it that way. Yeah. I don't know. Half of Rad Cafe was just me learning that everything is politicized, so this counts. <laughs> I, I agree, yeah. We'll, we'll bring it all together soon. A, a point about uh, the Luddite, I mean, a, a couple of things. I think in this op-ed or whatever in the in the magazine, uh, the idea of the Luddite wasn't like a kind of permanent regression, like mm -hmm. moving back for the sake of moving back in terms of like techno deceleration. And it's, more, it's more like, let's pump the brakes on just having like the ruling class and the property owning class like decide what kind of technology is in the world that actually becomes like super inaccessible for poor people, people who don't don't have the means to access these technologies. And so, so yeah, Luddite is, is a pretty strong word with strong connotations. I think they're just getting to like a, a space of can we democratize technologies and property used towards creating value so that it isn't just like funneled back up to like the elite. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Technology that actually 
wealth and tools-wise benefits the masses. Even though Luddite doesn't connote that off the bat most of the time. Um, okay. So I think we're on the same page when we, but we're just using different words, or at least this article was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to refer back to this article again, and I wish I, I had the magazine on me, but they also talked about how techno-optimism can be this fantasy realm. It's kind of like turning Facebook into meta, and it's kind of like this wet dream for upwardly mobile Silicon Valley nerds or whatever to sell to people this fantasy that only they can afford while everyone else is paying for that fantasy to mm -hmm. is there a techno optimism that doesn't end up that way because it feels like if money is centralized in this class of people does the value of that fantasy of that techno optimism redistribute itself somehow or is it at risk of not of, of just festering in that class of people yeah lots of good questions again disclaimer um, i'm also trying to figure out so y'all hit me up if you've cracked the code something that is really interesting and in by interesting i mean slightly depressing about techno optimism is that it imagines a world in which we don't have bodies or like that we just don't have we're just little blobs and brains have you heard of smart cities it's not like sin cities right it's not like an offshoot of that it's totally different no no, no. it's it could be it's like the internet of things but like citywide yeah it is the internet of things i'm trying to think of some examples like Something that people really hype up is like, oh, you can track when your bus is coming super regularly. So that's like a tangible smart city item. Like there's also other things like you work or you live in a building and you can open it with your phone. You're renting a car and you don't, um, you can just hit a button on your phone or order a drink and it shows up. Some things like that, like integrated within like a city ecosystem. The smart city really romanticized the idea of technology is going to help you and already know what you need. I'm trying to think of some other tangible examples. Um, the most famous one that I, I like recommend everyone look up is Alphabet, I guess Google's um, Sidewalk Labs, which was a project in which they wanted to uh, redevelop the Toronto waterfront, I believe. And I think that's really interesting about smart cities is on the surface level, it looks pretty clutch. Oh my gosh, like infrastructure. Uh, development and that's updated and uh, like you have all your information on your phone but it fails to look at the underbelly of it which is gentrification right like additional infrastructure development means that folks are going to get displaced especially in like new project development areas which are obviously going to bulldoze over or redevelop the most underinvested areas in a city i'm going on a bit of a tangent here what i was going to say is with smart cities what happens when you default on a payment and then your phone won't let you go back into your house because it's a smartphone. Now, it's not like someone's showing up to take away your keys. It's like, we can automatically lock you out. Let's say you have a little transit card and you're out of funds. You won't get to know when the bus is um, running. There's multiple layers of this, but what I think, again, cynical and careful, me, what techno-optimism like fails to consider is that there are like real tangible like stakes in the world and we're all not just living on an upper middle class to upper class like plane of existence in which we are, are going to benefit from these systems. Um, and the system implies like compliance, like techno-optimism, despite its like rhetoric of disruption is inherently like asking for compliance. If we are all being quantified in like tangible data forms, we are all like just a data exhaust that folks can use in order to like forcibly, like for example, locking you out of your apartment or more subtly, for example, showing you certain ads um, on social media networks. I think like techno-optimism implies quantification and like forgets that we are just bodies. At the same time, while implying like, oh my gosh, everyone's equal in on the internet or in this digital landscape, we know that's not true because the patterns that are, are being codified in this supposedly neutral way online, those patterns are being taken directly from the, the real world in which racism and classism and ableism does exist. Yeah, I can go into that for days, honestly. Um, but the TLDR is that I think 
the alternate future of like what technology looks like, which is not the Facebook meta. Um, oh my gosh, Elon Musk is going to launch us all into Mars and we're going to be okay. We don't want that techno optimism. I would highly recommend um, if y'all haven't um, looked into learning more about Afrofuturism and the amazing like creative thought leaders um, and artists that embody the space. I would highly recommend looking into vision of technology and future that involves bodies and race and especially like the black community. So yeah, big thoughts and look up Sidewalk Labs too, guys. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just pubbing links out here. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for, for really breaking down the, or introducing us to this universe, multiverse of, of thought and possibility around technology and relationship to people. And yeah, there are a lot of, <laughs> A lot of snags along the way, a lot, a lot of um, dilemmas to, to really think through. And I just wonder, like, who's going to be at the in the decision rooms that decide, like, which kind of technologies move forward, which ones will become like a tool for the exploitative exploiters right. and parasites? Because usually those ex same people don't really give a shit about and and we are rated R here, so you know profanity. <laughs> usually those kinds of people, the the developers and whether they're tech developers or. Re uh, land developers, real estate, others, urban developers, they don't care about what the poor have to say because they don't have the money. And then like techno-optimism, you almost can't divorce it from middle upper class planes of existence. And Honestly, upper class, you know, again, who's going to get launched into Mars? Do you need to be launched into Mars to have, to, to um, be the top dog here? Like if they go to Mars, then the middle class here becomes the upper class. Um, I hope there are sci-fis that talk about this sort of thing, because I'm trying to think about like what strikes look like in a techno future, high tech future. Do people who can't afford like the latest iPhone 100, how do they show that their labor still matters? And you have to be like super highly skilled in whatever thing in order to be part of the workforce at all. I mean... I am not an automation labor expert, but I think the tools for workers to voice their needs, the mechanisms are the same as they've always been with a little bit of evolution. For example, Amazon workers voting to see if they want to unionize or alphabet workers or Google workers created a alphabet workers union, I believe, to basically voice their concerns over Google's platforms, over their firing of like a black researcher. I don't know if you know Tenet Gebru. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. And so this was a Google employee that was taken out because of something? She was a tech, the co-lead of the ethical artificial intelligence team who was fired after her managers asked her to either withdraw a paper or remove the names of all the Google employees from that paper. Which is interesting. I think a lot of the discourse has been like, well, honestly, the paper wasn't like whistleblowing or anything. So we really don't know what the deal was. Anyway, Alphabet or Google workers joined and created a union to talk about some of what they considered Google violations of their ethics, for instance, firing researchers unprompted or just some of the projects they would take on, which includes things like Project Maven, which was a partnership with the Department of Defense. What's interesting to me, even as I dive more and more into um, technology equity, is that the tools and mechanisms for labor justice or just like uh, liberation, the tools are still there. They've evolved, but they're not necessarily like, oh my gosh, this is the new innovative flashy thing. It is like unionizing. It is organizing. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. These fundamentals don't change. It's just sometimes the hill gets so steep after the ruling class or the elite corporate class are like get more and more power it's just harder and harder to leverage to deal with them or bargain with them yeah because um, they can just be like screw off do you have any uh last thoughts on that before we switch gears i have a feeling we'll come back to it so yeah we will Let's yeah <laughs> I, I wanted to, i wanted to hear more about like what brought you to uh what tripped you into talking to thinking more about 
um, technology in this way, or just like politics in general? Like, were, was there any flashpoints that you remember where politics became like pachow in your face? I don't think it went pachow. It was more like, wait, hold up, several times over. Um, sorry, can you repeat the question? To the topic of political journey, there was a. I'm sure there was a reason that made you think Red Cafe. This this application is worth trying to get through and, and um and submitting so like what are some of the things that make you think like rad cafe would be worth your time um as reflected in your like your personal life yeah okay okay i got you um yeah i was like it's a my life is a political journey all of our lives are political journeys woo i think where i was in like my political education or like political i guess like specifically education i'll talk about that but prior to that um i think my education was very focused on direct action or talking points. What can I do to help here? And I think this is really important. I honestly think a lot of people just sit and do too much thinking and not enough action. Um, so I think it was like, I don't think that's a necessarily a bad foundation. Um, I had previously worked in some nonprofits and then I had volunteered with stuff. So I was very, um, I think like that's like kind of the wheelhouse that I knew. And it was also very um, Asian American focused. This is gonna be important. Um, so coming into Rad Cafe, I kind of saw this and I was like, I really do agree with a lot of foundations of like what I like hold to be true. I'm trying to think of what I hold to be true. Hang on. I'm trying to I'm trying to cite my sources. Whoa. For example, like what are fundamental human rights? Like housing as a human right. Borders are an illusion. The United States like should really stop imperializing countries. So those are like big things, right? But also I just, I know this to be true. Here is a direct action. And I think a lot of that came from like working nonprofits, like volunteering for campaigns for certain platforms. And I was just contributing to that as directly as I could. That was kind of the circle I was in. And I was thinking about it a little bit more and I saw Rad Cafe and I was I don't need to interrogate these foundations because I know them to be true, but I would like to deepen those foundations a little bit more. I think like getting to sit there with folks and like deepen and dig that foundation a little bit deeper is was kind of my goal. And then the second part, which as I said, like I worked primarily in a lot of Asian American spaces is that I really wanted to develop an international and transnational sense of politics because I was really focused on the Asian American component and the Southeast Asian American component as well. But the American was kind of an underlined. A lot of that work as a result tended to be really U.S. focused or like internal U.S. focused even. And I wanted to develop a little bit more of like a global sense of like politics without centering uh, the United States, which I don't think, I think we've all had enough of. I think those are my goals. I know Tree, you and I talked about this a little bit, but I was actually talking to a friend recently. She has just started law school. And as we know, law school is a conservative fashion. If you don't know that and you're going to law school, I'm really sorry to break it to you. But there it is. We were just talking about this and I was talking about Rad Cafe. A lot of like places think that in order to deepen your rigor of thought you just have to be very adversarial with what you talk you have to talk to like people in like who believe the complete opposite of you so they can pick apart your argument and that's how you're going to like develop your rigor of thought and I was sitting here and I'm like I've hung out with Tree a bit you know I've been to like some of these rad cafe discussions and I really don't think that's the case if anything your argument gets not flimsier maybe it might be rock solid but it would be on the more defensive like you would always be like responding in a gotcha sense making sure that you feel like you can't slip up it feels like bullet proof but that's just at the surface level because someone on the complete other plane of thought is only looking for holes kind of sitting in rad cafe i remember our first meeting i was just like i have no idea what i'm talking about and then you're like oh that's so cool why do you think that like in a very supportive way and i was like i was knocked flat um, i was just like whoa i don't know um, 
And I don't remember what it was, but I just remember like meandering, like stammering my way through everything. I was just like, well, I think this. And you're like, no, keep going with that. And I was just like, no, that's all I got, actually. <laughs> I was telling this to my friend. Um, we were calling. I was just like, when I really say like, I like dug all I thought I could. This is like my depth of thought. And then you feel supported enough to be like, I'm going to explore this avenue um, a little bit. And it might be like the wrong avenue, but I'm going to like go down it. I researched this and I don't think that's true, but I'm going to backtrack and I'm going to look somewhere else. Getting to explore it like really felt more substantive than I got five talking points and that's it. Maybe I'll add a sixth talking point if someone like comes up with a counter argument. I think the first two I was saying like, oh, I wanted to like decentered United States and I wanted to deepen that thought process, be getting to be supported enough to challenge myself without having like an adversarial relationship in the conversation. That was something that was really unexpected, but definitely I think one of the strongest components of like Rad Cafe for me at least. We went down like three avenues where I was like, I actually want to talk about this. So that is very indicative um, of what was going on. <laughs> I love it. This is really charging my heart. Just, just like making my, making me feel real. Oh, wow, Chris got. <laughs> Chris, you were able to grow like that. That means a lot. I hope that means a lot for you that you were able to have the space that isn't an adversarial one that gave you room to not be stuck in Americanism, as the term might be of of that you know, ethnocentrism mm -hmm. in America and. And, and what you, you're talking about, the yeah, I do remember you bringing that up with your friend, and I hope your friend's doing okay in, like, the um, inherent conservative DNA of law, uh, mm. of law academia. Not that I would know about any of that. Because the idea of the talking point is, like, you're putting an idea out in public to be tested by other people who, again, may be engaging you in bad faith argument. They're there mainly to poke holes in your argument. They're not going to support you in, like, developing your argument, because clearly then that means they'll have to fight that. Um, if they're debating you, they want you to have a weak argument for your own enrichment. Yeah. How do you, <laughs> of course, you can't always be in fight mode. We talked a little bit about this outside of the conversation that you had a lot of thoughts right now. You you just started your work and now you have like all these thoughts that you want to, where your, your head feels full, your heart has room to take in that fullness and maybe like metabolize the thoughts, both at a feelings level and a thinking level. And you don't have that if you're going to just be thrown in, into a gladiator match with someone who's like, okay, noob, you got all these thoughts. Now you better know how to like process them while I like beat you to a pulp. Yeah. Yeah. And like those talking points can calcify too. If you're just leaning on them, they can go rigid and stale. They can be your armor, but they're not going to grow because it's just armor. That's right. Yes. Armor can only hold off the enemy, but you can't build things with it. And we're, that's what we're trying to do here at Rad Cafe, hopefully, um, and any space that you will enter with that heart and mind of openness and curiosity, of robust muscular curiosity, mm -hmm. yeah. seeking to build with others rather than seeing who is wrong and who's right and worthy of leading a sinking emp a sinking campaign or something. I don't know. A sinking ship. Right. Trying to, leading yeah. a sinking ship. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's your political journey. Are there any like anecdotes or like moments in time that you were like, this is opening my eyes or opening the pores in my in my heart to ideas of politics? I actually had this conversation with some folks recently where we talked about like, what are the three biggest like politicization turning points for you? Um, and some of them were really silly and some of them were quite serious, obviously. Let's hear the silly ones. Uh, <laughs> My silly one was when I got dumped by a tech bro. Fuck him. Yeah. Okay, for the record, fuck you, tech bro. Okay, go ahead. Oh my god. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, but I think it was really funny because my friend, um, and actually multiple friends, were like, yo, he was holding you back, though. Because I think part of the reason, not out of the many, many ones, but it was just funny because I think we would just have arguments and be like, yo, this uh hold up, this shit is kind of unethical. And they'd be like, I feel personally attacked. And I'm like, 
maybe that's the point. And then that's what I got. I think I like I really should have seen the getting dumped coming. <laughs> but it was just really funny. And I think after that, I actually felt a lot more comfortable pursuing like, oh, this lane of thought or like getting to interrogate that more deeply. Because again, um, before that, like the main person I was talking to had a very adverse had very adversarial conversations, right? Like really defensive ones on both sides. And then I think after that, I was able to find folks who are interested in this lane of thought and being like, yeah, I am on the same path as you. Um, I, like I said before, I was previously a computer science major. So I would, after that, I found folks who were like, I am on the same path as you. Like something's not adding up about the work that we're doing or something's not adding up about the way that these like Silicon Valley products are being like um, purported to be like life-changing. And so like, let's dig in that, into that together. So I think in terms of like, maybe not political turning point, but political acceleration, that was a, that's a really silly one. Um, yeah, but I did like get to find a lot of like really amazing people that I do talk to to this day, just because we were just like, yeah, wait a second. Like, not because like I had to push them necessarily. Like some of my friends who are very like in that realm of work still, if someone wants to learn, they will learn. But it takes a lot of work to push someone who is not willing to learn. Um, and so once I was able to find folks who were like on the same path as me, like I think we were accelerating each other's learning. Um, so that's like, I, I do think the first, like I'm just like the turning point though, um, or the accelerator. I think it's a really good, uh, it's a really good clickbait title. <laughs> How to become radicalized from your, from your breakup. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like steps, like it's a, it's a Buzzfeed article. I can see it now, but I think on a more serious note on like what political turning points for me were, I got to intern at a Southeast Asian American organization and it was really interesting. That was the first time that I was introduced like concretely to Southeast Asian American as a political identity, as opposed to, as I said, I'm second generation Vietnamese American, as opposed to being Vietnamese American or Asian American because um, I really thought those were like the only two things you could go between <laughs> but I think like getting to work at this organization I did a lot of work I did some immigration work I did some education work uh, I got to interview some some 1.5 generation folks who like were kids in refugee camps and understanding like understanding their stories and like that really helped me connect to my parents a lot more and also reframe uh, my hometown and I was like, wait a second, this is a Southeast Asian American enclave. I had no idea. If I put like one and one together, I would have figured it out. But I didn't figure it out until post-college, which is embarrassing, but I'm just going to own up to it. I'm like, I didn't realize that the history of this community extended so far in my hometown. And just getting to reframe a lot of like my childhood and what that looks like, I think was really formative um, in developing a political identity. Not just one that is like just blanket statement anti-communist. What does being a part of like this political identity impacted by the war in Southeast Asia mean. Yeah, so that's on a more serious note, obviously. I did a lot of writing um, during that, those couple of months I was interning. Private writing or public writing? I think. Like journaling or? I did a little bit of both. I did some writing with some friends that were often synthesized in silly ways by like my internship or like my work. I was thinking about like generational divides, like after I was interviewing folks from like first gen, 1.5 gen, second gen. Um, for those listening, it's first gen is uh those who arrived in the United States were born in another country. 1.5 gen is often those who arrived as kids, not adults. And the second gen is those who were born here. So I know we have different definitions on that. I remember I was talking to someone else at the organization and um, thinking about those gener generational divides. And then I went back and I wrote this entire just like short essay on like how I resonated more with, I like I went on a date, but then I met their parent um, and then I resonated more with 
their second generation mom, then there's, I was like, in my eyes, spoiled, whitewashed third generation self. So I think like some of those like silly processings, I was like, oh, there's doing, I'm like doing a lot of like writing and reflecting. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been going out of order. And then my first one is honestly just understanding the housing crisis in the Bay Area once I moved down to the Bay Area for college. The order, in case you're wondering, is two, three, one. Two, three, one. Internship, housing, breakup. N- no. You said two, three, one. Mm, no one ever said I was a math major. Okay. It's not even math. We're not adding anything. Well, this is, I don't know. This is getting on the public record and my friends are going to listen to this and like. I can edit any of it. No, no, no. It's okay. It goes, so I started out, moved down to the Bay, learned more about the housing crisis, like uh, school to prison deportation pipeline, just like a lot of like badass folks who politicized me in the Bay Area, did a lot more interrogation directly with my complicit role in technology and found some really great folks. Um, So that is the second one. And then post that, I remember I just talked a really big talk during college about the tech industry and then after a while I was just like oh no this would be embarrassing if I if I immediately took a job I can't do that like I can't I, I can't just take a job in the tech industry I'm like I've, I've talked such a big game so then I decided to intern for a uh, non-profit after I graduated that's the order of operations nice nice wait I may have missed where the uh the housing okay so housing stuff came first yeah mm-hmm. okay it's like I think you really like have to be oblivious or deliberately like go out of your way to ignore it if you're in the bay area if you're like oh i guess you are like corkscrewing around like i don't even know how do you think a a techno optimist sort of campaign can uplift that sort of crisis or 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 injustice or do you think they're kind of a little too far apart from each other for there to be any kind of impact residual or, or intentional from the techno optimism oh i hope folks who use techno optimism in like a human rights framework aren't being offended by our use of it. At least this the entrepreneurship like rhetoric and like innovation rhetoric, the culture that comes out of that, I don't think is sustainable because you have to approach these issues as what they as what they are, which are human rights and not something to be gamified or hacked or disrupted, right? They might be like short-term solutions, but is that going to exacerbate the problem in the long term? I don't know, but that's the path that it's likely going to go on. For example, there's a housing crisis. <laughs> okay, there's a housing crisis in the Bay Area. Let's talk about it. There are some companies that will take warehouses and turn them into luxury housing at below market rate or like relatively luxury housing. I know this is very Bay Area pricing. So if you're like, in what God's name, green earth, is that supposed to be affordable? Exactly. There was a warehouse and that was previously, I believe, an uh, housing for like artists and then it was remodeled and refurbished everything into kind of below market rate like housing for folks who could not afford market rate but did not qualify for like affordable housing yet 800 per room a very very small room if you want a comparison in the same area it would be maybe like 1200 to uh 1500 for a comparative room that is actually significantly larger. The argument here that folks made was like, well, it's so expensive to live here and we're trying to make things, like we're trying to hack the market rate. We're trying to like make it lower, but it's still 800 a month. Like, is that really going to help the people that you claim to help when you're saying like, we're going to lower like market rate housing? I'm not an econ expert, but I am pretty sure that you can't use the framework of saying like, I'm saving the housing crisis right now. Um, and like cite the folks who are unhoused 
as like the reason why you're doing this. Like this is clearly you are not benefiting this community. Yeah. And I think that's just like that's one example of like there's a lot of like really flashy entrepreneurs that do get a lot of articles featured in the Bay Area um, and they will uh, politely invoke uh, any kind of social justice movement to make themselves seem less entrepreneurshipy and more saviory. Um, there's folks that I know that talk about mental health, um, like or like have a mental health startups, but also not do their due diligence to think about like what are the communities that are most impacted or how this frame the framework that they're creating is actually like continuing um, on like not proven like uh, psychology uh, standards. I don't know how to describe this without like shading someone directly. What I'm trying to say essentially, so you can uh, let me know, uh, Tree. But what I'm trying to say is that um, the entrepreneurship rhetoric is not going to solve human rights because it doesn't involve a human rights framework, in short. I mean, profit's still the, the bottom line, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, we can help people. And most importantly, we can make money. Um, I don't know. The Theranos trial is going on right now, I think. Yeah. So I don't know why I'm citing all these examples. It's right there. Wait, what, what do you mean by right there? The thing? Oh, I mean, like, I don't know why I'm citing all these alternate examples when I could just cite Theranos and be done with it. Yeah. I mean, it's good to have all the small ones because people think, like, Theranos is an exception to the rule, even though Theranos is the rule. People will, like, do lots of mental gymnastics to be like, ah, <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Anyway, that is, um, that is kind of my political uh, one, two, three, probably four, five, six, seven. I, I know I am trying to find more, like, Southeast Asian spaces because I do think it is, like, a really important framework that I want to center in my like political identity and development. So Rad Cafe and also was really lovely for that in particular. Healthy, yeah. And and what you're speaking to now of the chunk of our conversation now, we didn't have any of this during our um our like private one on one calls um that we did for during the research. And I'm thinking like I wonder how much the tone that I was setting around like finding a Southeast Asian centric topic of research kind of involved that because maybe there's a suggestion that Southeast Asians don't have like a huge stake in tech technology discourse do you feel like that's kind of like a reason why maybe you strayed away from that or maybe there's another incentive for you to be like pick the topics you did i think we do have a stake so during my time when i worked in nonprofits, um uh i still work in a nonprofit. um i don't know why i'm saying it like it's a past thing in my prior roles i kind of observed that there wasn't a lot of focus on technology policy i think it just didn't seem to folks as critical as maybe to the Asian American at large, I'll just say broadly, um, as like immigration or education or healthcare or language access, which I'm like, I totally get. Those are so directly related. And also there's a stronger foundation for like decades of advocacy, like decades or centuries of advocacy that we've been building off for that. So that totally makes sense. I think that's not like South, the fact that it's hard to connect is not Southeast Asian specific. Again, it's because the, common rhetoric around um, technology is that they are race blind and that we are floating little brains that don't have bodies. That is a really deliberate way of steering um, communities of color away from understanding how technology does control and police like the way we exist. Um, we obviously all know because of the pandemic, so many things that we need to get access to are limited by our um, digital literacy. So like, how do you, if you don't have internet access, how is your kid going to hop on a computer for Zoom for their class? Um, or how are they going to look for healthcare? 
And so the, they're all intertwined, and I think I'm trying to get more folks in, like, Southeast Asian, Asian American spaces to think about those frameworks as, like, this is something that affects our communities. But it is, like, I totally understand that, like, we don't have the the band like we don't have the bandwidth like a lot of nonprofits or like folks don't have the bandwidth to like take on this extra wing um we don't have the research for how it affects our communities at large um and also something that i think um is like a misconception is that oh my god there's so many asians in tech we should be fine right and i'm like that's not true actually because one the ones who are in tech um tend to be more on the east asian east asian and south asian side i know because i've had southeast asian friends work in these companies and they just straight up go yo i went to the affinity group there's no southeast asians and on top of it on top of it, i'm just going to narrow the scarcity even more there's not a lot of asian americans and especially southeast asian americans working in technology policy so not a lot of examination on how it affects communities at large production is not the same as policy or decision making so part of like i really want to be able to learn how to connect this back to um like especially immigrant and refugee resilience when i like will bring that up it's not like it's very obvious right and that's not a competition i want to clarify we have intersecting systems of oppression baby um <laughs> yeah so it's not a competition but like it's not if i bring this up it's not like people are going like southeast asians um southeast asian americans are immediately going to go like fuck yeah i know someone who's affected by algorithmic bias the same way they might be able to say it for other topic areas. Woo! Hot! Damn. Oh, wow. What a... Just just really tearing it all down and flipping that script. Wow, if we had more time, I would have loved for you to have, like, uh, been given all the incubation space to really expand that that line of inquiry. Um, Southeast Asian relationship to tech policy, digital, both both digital and other otherwise. We know it's there. Um, there's so many ways. Like, I know that there are, like orgs right now that are working um, in disinformation monitoring um, on social media networks and asking for more transparency around that. Um, we know that um, there's folks working in immigration work um, that are limiting the, trying to limit the amount of data that the um, DHS and ICE can get from third-party vendors and like how our data is sold. Um, so there's like a lot of intersections. I want to clarify, like, it's not like this isn't the first time this brain cell has ever been thought of. That works just honestly, I'm like, that work just needs to continue. I'm excited to see where it goes. And I hope I get to be more involved in it. Um, I just hope, I also think that um, I really want to see that like comprehensive, like understanding, like across like the Southeast Asian American umbrella. I think something that I was talking about with a friend, I think there's a lot of like programs and like teaching people how to code. Um, teaching people how to get into, especially in Silicon Valley, but I'm sure everywhere else, um, teaching people that this is a way, like a pathway for economic opportunity. Like you will become a software engineer and you will make bank and you'll be living it up. Like if you're working in like these communities and you like, or not working, I'm sorry, you live and you are these community um, members. Um, what does it mean when like the, like making it big, like working at like, uh, like Amazon or like Facebook or Google means that like making it big means you're going you have the opportunity you have is continuing to develop technology that will police and surveil and target your own community so like I think part of like me wanting to like talk about like these risks and harms is that like tech right now is viewed like not viewed it's deliberately framed as like something that is 
prosperous for all, um, especially if you get further into the pipeline or you get further into the machine. I think I think about this a lot because I'm like, what would it mean if we had economic opportunity and like the digital literacy to identify these risks and harms to our communities without framing it as just like, oh my gosh, you're like a software engineer. Like you must make so much money. Totally. Let's let's break it down a little bit. And I'm, <laughs> just for the audience to know, I mean, I made this point a couple of times. I'm just wondering, like we, we're getting deeper into something so very interesting. And for all, for the, the big disclaimer is the research topic that um, I t- I'm telling people um, in each podcast I say like was a th- was the thing that um, each guest did. Chris's topic of deportation politics. I mean, there's overlap, but I think it's very there's a big old radius between that and what we're talking about now, which I, I love that we we can do both. Um, we'll probably have to set a time another time another time to like talk about that and then like relate it to what we talked about here. And I, I would love for that. But um, living under like the the big leftist buzzword, racial capitalism, right? The thing you said about, like, let's say an exceptional uh, Southeast Asian person who is able to jump through all the hoops and, and become a, like a well, well-paid, well comfortably waged um, technocrat, basically, or, or a person who has the, the means to, to have a lot of personal wealth. Yes, they girl-bossed their way into the sun. Mm-hmm. And the sun is growing bigger and bigger, and it's like burning everyone who can't afford to oh like. Oh my god! Okay, okay. <laughs> hey, you you put the metaphor out there. I'm like, this is this is how I extend it. This is how I like the idea of digital literacy. Uh, I'm trying to keep my thoughts together here. Um, hold, hold it all together. Like in politics, even if you're literate enough to know like these politicians are are fucking you and your people over, like you can't do anything about it without leverage. And the same thing goes for digital literacy. Even if you can like name that these tech companies are are like harming, are destroying the the self esteem and the and the of, of women and girls everywhere on like these social media platforms and then like other ways that these digital spaces are corrupted. You can know these things, but how do you bargain against that? How do you like put pressure and who do you put pressure on for, for those things to change? I mean, there is, Facebook is, they are facing a lot of government stuff right now. They're in, in courts, but like sometimes you, you can't always count on these things, these processes, these legal processes to deliver justice. And so like both literacy, but power building, right? You can have policy, but do you have advocates and the grassroots power for, for that pressure to mean anything? Or do these corporations and these halls of power, these these corporations embed with each other, are they way more powerful than the grassroots movements that it's, they're impervious to any kind of uh, power building at that level? At that are some thoughts that went through my head. I'm still thinking about a lot of this. I think a lot of the framing around the first, uh, first thing I would say is shout out to um, those who did girl boss their way into the sun. Hope you're doing okay. I think a lot of the framework around economic opportunity with like the tech industry is that I think it was framed around like trying to make it to like those big companies trying to what I want to say I'm going to jump past what I'm trying to say and just try and get no prep work I'm just going to jump right into it is that I want to see more of more of like a developed pipeline for that vigilance right um what would it be like if there were more organizations monitoring regulating uh shadow FTC Hope you get your budget so you can hire more folks for this. What would a pipeline look like where economic opportunity is predicated on being able to support your community, being able to educate, being able to advocate for your community um, and have the digital literacy, like have the uh, technical knowledge to explain why these harms are being done or what the practices of this company are and how that affects folks. What I'm basically saying is like, what if you could use those skills to respond to those threats rather than perpetuate them? Because as we know, um, again, uh, being in the production uh, like line does not mean you are in the decision making line. Yeah, unless you're unionizing at some point. But even like the, 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 the level of knowledge work and skilled work 
you need to get to to become a worker who's part of such a union to let to do that kind of bargaining in that production line you're already like several like a whole ladder above like working people who who aren't skilled in that way like making a lot of money and can comfortably if, if even if these like knowledge workers in tech didn't leverage that power that labor power mm-hmm. they could still live on their personal wealth just fine and not give a shit versus like a service industry people or manufacturing where it's like if, if you don't have this job and you, and if striking like causes you to be fired or something or out of a job then like you're done you don't have that personal wealth as a as a safety net i also wonder about like some there's something disproportionate about saying okay let's get this black and brown person this bipoc person to have these skills to like bring it back to their community why are and and all these white people who don't have to do anything they just get to keep on making their money and not having to think about any of that do we put any kind of pressure on them to do things for communities outside of themselves or do we just keep asking for like the black and brown people who are exceptional exceptional enough to like have these skills they're the ones who are burdened with like doing that that work that, that labor of like educating their own and i don't know if i have a clear answer to that um i will say that uh i did briefly join an organization that was focused on um mentoring high school girls in tech the the high school girls in question were all from schools in silicon valley so i was like i don't think you need more mentorship i think you might actually know more than me um so so I, I think I hear, I at least I understand kind of the thread that we're going on. Um, I will say, and I think we can also talk more about, I know specifically on um, at the Rad Cafe topic, which was on like deportation and assimilation. This actually does come a lot into play because we're talking about labor right now, right? And we're talking about like which bodies on which brains are useful. And so I think this is like another dimension of understanding what is useful to um, to a technocrat society in the United States, uh, what does com- political compliance look like when we talk about honestly? Like, I will spoil some fun facts for everyone. Automation, guys. A lot of it is just outsourcing labor. Fun facts. Uh, not fun. We're, and we're going to dive more into this, but like we talked a lot about how deportation and immigration policies are just levers used to control like flow of the flow of labor. And also sometimes like political dissidents. That's honestly mostly labor. But like, and what, who is in compliance with being like a good United States person? I'm going to say like, they don't even get citizenship. So what, who is like a good American? When we talk, when I like kind of, I'm kind of bringing in this lens of like data being given to ICE or um, surveilling folks or um, things like Amazon or other companies like quantifying productivity, especially with service workers or warehouse workers um, or non like knowledge workers per se. Um, a lot of this does tie into the same machines. Uh, sometimes, like, because data is exchanged between parties and flow of, like, I don't, like, I can connect, like, a dot, like, dots pretty concretely, but I won't. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, this is another dimension of the conversation that we had at Rad Cafe, which is just immigration and deportation being used as tools to control, like, um, levers to control uh, labor flow and bodies. Tech is just, again, it's nothing new. It's just another tool, maybe at a larger scale. <laughs> Larger scale and more targeted. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, yeah, targeted for sure. For for knowledge labor to cultivate like it does with like as you said, like a lot of the high school girls tech. I imagine most of them were white. You can tell me otherwise. Oh, white and East Asian and South Asian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I left out those two. Well, I'm so removed from tech that I know like those those groups are true, but then like I just forget a lot of times. Just like oh, they're all white, but yeah, yeah, yep. 
like for, for that knowledge labor to be cultivated, you have to have a relatively stable something, like relatively stable, like domestic something. I, I know I have the words for it, but you can't, your family can't be like crossing things or like being in survival mode where like you, you haven't been able to just plant yourself into uh, an academic ecosystem where you're able to be trained into that pipeline to become that thing. So, so usually that kind of knowledge labor requires you to have like borders keeping, <laughs> I don't know, the undesirables out quote unquote, um, so that your generations and, and, and spawning grounds for the new generations of knowledge labor can, can thrive and, and be unperturbed by other things, um, other inputs, like at, at any rate. So, so there are two different layers of labor. Yeah. The knowledge labor requires kind of like state borders. The borders are, are more about, are determined by the state and are, if we're talking about how human beings and species of all kinds are very us versus them just at a, like a natural level, like the state is just a very heightened version of that. So borders are actually very logical when you think about how fear drives people to be like, we need to keep our people safe by keeping those people out. No matter how much we like have our, our liberal ideals within the within the empire, right? We can like comfortably say all these things. I can comfortably say these things with you within the empire and have this, this discussion. Yes, I think that it all ties back very well. And even with the idea of like minorities, like non-white, non-hegemonic bodies, the South Asians and the East Asians, like they're you know, they're going to be good, high functioning furniture. They'll, they'll stay quiet. Whatever non-white people will be able to stay quiet, stay in the background, do like be really good at keeping the organs moving and, and well-nourished. But the, the, the face of the empire will, will be, will look a certain way and will present itself like the Theranos. It'll be like a white woman pronouncing herself as like the new generation of like women, CEO, tech, whatever the fuck. While like clearly lots of Black and brown poor people are so, ha, have become victims of her of her delusions of grandeur at a real level, like using her product and like not getting anything out of it, if not like becoming harmed by it. I think this is this is a this is counterintuitive, even as I say it out loud. I feel like the Pan Asian American umbrella is always complicated to unpack. I don't know; it's just hard to a lot of like Southeast Asian folks, Southeast Asian American folks that I know. Um, are always trying to clarify those distinctions on like in terms of like how our um, ethnic identities intersect. Yeah, just intersect with like access to opportunities and class and migration stories and uh, different traumas. <laughs> I think like it's, I was gonna say like it's counterintuitive, but like the face of white supremacy will always keep changing. The KKK one day, it's Elizabeth Holmes. I don't, I don't know if it is like directly Elizabeth Holmes, but like it's white feminism and white woman victimhood another day. I like some of my peers um, came mind as like, well, white supremacy is predicated on the marginalization and oppression of like black and indigenous peoples. That's really important to keep in mind when we talk about what the Asian American experience looks like. I think like a lot of folks don't talk about how Asian American was initially a political coalition. It was not like an identity that was created um, necessarily. Yeah, it was a political coalition created at Berkeley um, by a couple of students who we're like, we have a lot in common um, because of U.S. imperialism happening in our countries. Um, shout out Third World Liberation Front. Yeah, look up UGI Chioka for those who are interested in learning the history and the start of like what Asian American actually is. Before that, there was no term for like this pan-Asian description. You know, they really didn't distinguish. There was a lot of um, what we would now honestly consider slurs towards like Asian folks that were used as descriptors, but there was nothing, there was no such thing as Asian American. It wasn't used as like a racial descriptor. So when we hear like, oh, there's like 
when you hear like on the census, you hear like, oh, there's white, black, Latino, Asian. That was not something that like the U.S. Census decided to come up with out of like classifying. It was originally a term um, from like um, from a political coalition. And so I, I'm I I feel really passionate about this. What I'm trying to say about distinguishing it as a political coalition is that when like I hear a lot like Asian American is not a monolith and you're like I'm like you're right in fact it is a political coalition the way and we should think about how um, identities within that coalition bring different perspectives and specifically how we center each other Um, so for example no one says that BIPOC is a race that would actually be like ridiculous we think about the specific intersections in which like our uh, different communities um, intersect are like the way that we are a coalition um, or a coalition or a set of experiences that are influenced by white supremacy. But no one says that about Asian American anymore. Um, I don't know what, what I'm saying is making UGI Chioka roll in his grave. I sincerely hope not. Sincerely. Um, but I think I tried to remind that, I, like, I talked to that um, to folks who are talking about, like, what is Asian American? And I'm like, it's an illusion. It's not an illusion. But we should think about it as a political framework um, to, like, focus on all of our separate lived experiences and how they intersect the answers imperialism once again. Uh, Yeah, great. Thank you for offering that. And I think I would add into the mix, um, empire doesn't run without money. So Mm -hmm. I, and hierarchy empire is the, the body, like the skin and the face, but internally, I think it's what we, the, the term I used earlier, racial capitalism that gives it any ability to walk around and like beat people up and like shoot guns and drop bombs. Like, you have to have money to like buy the materials to create these things and then have like a nice face and say like, we're doing this in the name of democracy. Mm. That part, the propaganda is empire, but like the actual like sending militaries in Mm -hmm. is the capitalism race part. But all that is to say it's all wrapped up. And I hope we have another moment to like continue this and tie it together um, with your topic. I don't know. Uh, I am a slow thinker. I think I do tend to marinate for thoughts in a really long time before actually having something concrete. As Tree knows from our discussions, um, everything that you have just heard in this last like time interval or so um, have honestly been things that I've been marinating on for months, if not years. So this is just very indicative of me being indecisive when put on the spot. I think I will think on it. Um, because again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of intersecting systems, but I would love to just do a deeper reflection a little bit on, um, the original slotted topic. My bad. No, not your bad at all. This is great. I love it. I know people will love hearing, listening to this. We, Southeast Asians don't get to talk about this on the record often. So thank you for making the space for yourself and for us. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for hosting, um, both this and Rad Cafe, uh, is a good time. I sure hope so, because I'm sure it can get really dicey with like topics like these can get people real emotional if they really care about the topic and then they're like butting heads with someone else. So I'm glad you think it's a good time. Um, with that, hopefully we, yeah, whatever happens next, what happens next, but you, everyone, all the audience, you as the audience have this episode to listen to, run it back, share it with your friends, and looking forward to see, hearing, having you all listen to the next episode with the next guest at Rad Cafe. This has been Tree, designer of Rad Cafe uh, at The Seed Project. Signing off. Bye.